0: of Christ.
1: No, stop it. it that's cruel. Come on. Stop. Lisa, no, honey,
0: what is wrong with you? If this is a joke, Father, it, it's not funny. I...
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fear Response Podcast. This is another of our uh, shorter series for the month of October, where we're reviewing um, Midnight Mass. And uh, just in time for that new Mike Flanagan uh, spooky October show to come out. So, yeah, just perfect time to review the last
0: one. Absolutely. And hello, everybody. And we love Mike Flanagan. We are big fans of his work. And Midnight Mass is no exception. In fact, it might be the quintessential example because we love Midnight Mass. And we're excited to be talking about these episodes. This episode, Jenna, is a really, really, really good one.
1: Yeah, we were just saying, um, Mike. The first episode has some establishing to do, as any pilot does of any show. And so uh, with the second one here, things really start to kick off in a bunch of different arenas. Things get scarier. Yep. Um, you, you kind of uh, expand on the relationships between the people in the town and the religious aspects. Like everything kind of picks up in this episode in a really fun way.
0: Yeah, and we pick up right where episode one left off. And thankfully, because it was a big reveal.
1: With countless dead cats.
0: With all the dead cats, exactly. You know, like in a novel, sometimes one chapter will end with like a big dump of something really interesting, but then the next chapter doesn't pick up right where that person was. Oh, I hate that. Oh, I hate that. And that does not happen.
1: Oh, I hate that (laughs) so much. Because then I feel like I want, especially books that go from different people's perspectives. Exactly. I, I, and then I'm like, okay, fine. I want to skip towards the next, like, Jon Snow chapter or whatever. <laughs> because it's like, I don't care about what's going on with Tyrion right now, you know? <laughs> or
0: you're like, oh, great. Now I'm from the perspective of this old man who's reflecting on his life. This is great.
1: Yeah, it's like, uh Are you the kind of person who, when reading a book, and I'm talking not listening to a book, reading it. Yes. Are you the kind of person <laughs> who... Um, has to end at the end of a chapter or can you just drop it anywhere?
0: Um, I usually, when I'm reading a book, I usually drop it when it falls on my face in bed and then I'm like, this is enough. And by that point, I've usually reread the same paragraph multiple times in a row because my absorption Mm. is not...
1: Oh my God. (laughs) When I work a night shift and I've got a book in front of me, like... I I feel embarrassed for my coworkers like to like how what hat the they must think of me because I stare at the same page <laughs> for what feels like hours because I just like I I you know it's three in the morning and I'm completely brain dead and I just can't They're take like, it. In. Oh, she's a slow. Oh, and by the way, when I was asking you about about reading a mm-hmm. book, no shade on audiobooks because I'm a big well, audiobook.
0: Yeah, fan. same. I would get I wouldn't get through nearly as many books in a year if I had to read them all myself. I like to outsource those type of things. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, I've got people for that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've got a book guy. Robert Glenister, hello. Yeah, seriously.
1: Okay, so the beginning of this episode, as we said, kicks off with countless dead cats on the beach. Have you ever seen something like that? Like a bunch of dead animals in a place? I'm trying
0: to think. It's like you hear news stories and stuff like about a a bunch of birds were dead or something. But Mm -hmm. no, I can't think of anything... And that would really scare me, I would have to say. I would be like, I'm not oh, safe breathing this air yeah. that wherever I am.
1: Well, do you know what? It, it actually is not a scary thing. But I was out walking um, by the river recently, by the rapids in the river, and there were a ton of huge dead salmon. Really wow. big. Like, like a foot and a half, two feet long. But that's actually not bad um, because they were there to spawn. And they di- like they just die when they're done spawning, and that's just their life cycle. Really? So it wasn't some like calamity had befallen them; they were just done their business, and so they just died. Wow! But there were tons. I didn't of, know that. I about probably that. probably passed like five of them. Jeez. And they're and it's one thing when they're like little fish, but they're big fish. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, so basically, we're focused on the sheriff and the mayor uh, for the beginning of this, where the mayor and the sheriff are speaking yep. to each other. The mayor is really um, trying to kind of quiet things down and make things seem more normal, just like the mayor and Jaws, like you had mentioned, <laughs> right? I was
1: going to say, channeling channeling the mayor from Jaws with everything but the seersucker suit. Yeah,
0: big time. And whereas the sheriff is like, this could be a disease. We have to burn all these cats. Mm-hmm. It's not safe. we got to contact mm-hmm. public health and all these things that the mayor does not want him to do because he doesn't want anyone in a panic. The mayor's <laughs> doing lots of rationalizing um, you know so speculating about sharks and ospreys and all these things that could have killed the cats
1: ha- Sharks?
0: I think he does mention sharks. sharks he's like it? maybe the sharks are back because apparently there hadn't been but it's like probably not too many cats get so killed the, by the sharks the
1: cats were all out swimming? <laughs> like all these cats were swimming and got I think he speculated that sharks?
0: the cats got caught in the flood from the very big storm and ah, washed out to sea and and, got... and the sharks were like oh shit look at this guy's soup's on
1: yeah they're like oh those those furry four-legged fish are back those (laughs) are great let's eat them
0: a rare delicacy for a shark i would have to think um the mayor's kind of funny he says "wowzers" a lot multiple times (laughs) yeah and he's kind of running like a little bit of a ned flanders type eh? yeah right down to the mustache and right down to the look Except it, I don't know if you know how deep you are on Simpsons lore and I'm certainly not too deep, but Ned not. Flanders is like built. He's like super, su- super oh. buff. Um,
1: nice. No, I didn't He's know like that. a
0: walking enigma, but um, he kind of runs ahead of the sheriff when other townsfolk are coming down and he's like, oh yeah, terrible, terrible scene. All natural causes. They all died from natural causes. <laughs> and I thought that was so funny. <laughs>
1: Yeah, definitely. And and you can imagine how that might be a way that as a um as the mayor you might want to address the situation sure. is to try to uh try to write it off as something not that serious. You don't wanna, you know, upset all your townspeople.
0: And maybe you're rationalizing to yourself. Maybe you're like, it's probably nothing, yeah. right? It's probably something with a very good, simple explanation, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I think that often you and I, rather than being rationalizers when it comes to ourselves, we're a bit more catastrophizers a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, I think that'd be a fair assessment of myself. I'm not, um, I'm not like hypochondriacal, or I'm, I'm not a hypochondriac to the point where you know I would have um, a diagnosis of, of anything along those lines. I don't think, but when it comes to health or things like that, sometimes I'm definitely thinking about worst case scenario and it's hard to put it out of my mind sometimes right and i'm able to but you know Mm -hmm. the thought comes up is this a headache or is this something more sinister right which is (laughs) not a fun way to to feel when you're having that but oh well
1: Mm -hmm. and uh and the sheriff is being yeah very practical um, proactive forward thinking
0: um agreed and then like do you think it's supposed to be a little more like othering of the sheriff again too, where he's like he's really thinking this is the way we need to handle it and the mayor's kind of against that and he feels like okay what is it with this island like no one's ever on the same page as me
1: well because it's just him and the mayor butting heads I don't really think of it that way because it just seems to be a one-to-one disagreement I think you're right I can see what you're what you're saying and he is like and I, I actually think it's pretty impressive considering that he is the new sheriff in town to that, stand up
0: for himself and his idea, yeah.
1: Yeah, that he's, he's able to confidently do that in a in a crisis.
0: Absolutely. And so
1: do you get the impression that that he kind of brought him and his, his son to the island just for small-town living, for like a safe place to live, to connect with his son? Like, why do you think that he chose that?
0: That's a good question. I hadn't thought about that, but I think in the first episode they might make some allusion to... Well, the job here is quite different than elsewhere. So, like, as the mm-hmm, the most mm-hmm. intense it gets for him is locking up Joe Colley every night because he's drunk and doing something he shouldn't be. And it's a safe place to live. It's uh, a place where he's not overrun as well with work. So he can connect with mm-hmm. his son. I wasn't sure if it was one of those situations or one of the situations where he, like, got posted there and didn't have too much say. Do you remember that?
1: mm I, I don't remember if they clarify that, okay. but for some reason I had it in my head that it was his choice.
0: He seems to be happy enough to be there. Um,
1: I, uh, Raul Coley, I think, is the name of the actor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think is very
0: good. He's awesome. I love him. It,
1: in the house of Usher, I almost did not recognize him. Like, it took me a full episode, even knowing that they repeat the actors. I was like, that's not him. I think I've only seen one episode, so but
0: I don't know if I've seen him or would I have?
1: Oh yes, you have. What? He just looks so different. He's Napoleon. He's the guy who is like playing video games in his apartment and oh, has all the tattoos. Sneak somebody out. Yes. Okay,
0: I, you're right. I didn't recognize him. He either. looks so different. Absolutely. Um, so we move on from the we move on from the beach, and uh, they cut us right to the church. And Father Paul is singing and moving up through the aisle between the pew and i was saying that unlocks some serious memories for me (laughs) you know being like a child and being in in a church and and kind of it was just there's so many scenes like that that are just really evocative of like yeah that's what it's like
1: (laughs) remember how we would walk to mass from our school
0: yes so i remember um (laughs) being in grade school not in high school because i went public um but we, uh, Jenna and I both went to a a very small school, probably like graduating classes of 20 or 30 some kids. And I had 18. There you go. And we would, um, we would walk the pretty short distance, maybe five or six blocks to the church as a whole school. It was like a pilgrimage and we would all do (laughs) mass there. (laughs) And it was like, dark. I bet you fell asleep 50% 50% of the time it's like dark It's warm yeah, yeah. there's like Singing you're sat down I bet you were sleeping half the time But yeah I, I just thought like that was a really Well done scene because the people who get it It's like yeah that's what It's like that's what it sounds like that's what it looks Like <laughs> yeah. We also get a quick scene of Riley taking the ferry to the Mainland and just like little yes. clips Of it of him attending AA As well mm-hmm. Um. And later we see. As
1: condition of his parole.
0: Right. So that's a a condition. So it's it's essentially mandatory.
1: So, uh, yes. And I was going to say, just to speak to um, AA a little in terms of like addiction. Um, So AA has been around for a really, really long time. Um, And one of the things that's kind of interesting about it, it's like ubiquitous. It's in so many communities. It's like. At least all over North America, certainly. right? Um, And it's helped, you know, so many people. Uh, It is a little bit interesting because it does have, uh, like, its roots are very uh, religious. Right. um, Like, rooted in Christian faith. And I think they've moved away from being as explicitly Christian in, like, later years. But that was definitely its roots. Um, So it's interesting uh, for that to come up in this story because... Obviously, that's um, so much of the story is like steeped in kind of Christian faith and religiosity. So, in terms of this narrative, it's it fits really well.
0: I was going to say that I think it's a perfect vehicle because it is something that Riley can really speak on, and Father Paul Hill can really as as an on.
1: atheist but an addict. Yes, and and yeah. then
0: Father Hill coming from the other side as a very religious person, but. You know as far as we know not necessarily an addict right so it's something that is an interesting way to tie those two characters together we also get a scene where father hill is walking with lisa through the town and it's establishing some of the lore i think because they run into joe collie and father hill is like oh hello good morning and joe can't even face the two of them and he makes himself scarce as quick as possible and lisa kind of is stopped in her tracks too
1: she seems to be glaring daggers at him. Yeah. That was my impression of her expression.
0: Right. And I was just thinking they're triggers for each other. And it's such a small island. Yeah. Right. Like it's yeah. so raw for the two of them. Um, and yeah, we're going to get more answers in this episode. But what it comes down to is you learn that Joe is the one who put Lisa in the wheelchair when there was mm-hmm. a hunting accident and he shot her, which is pretty intense, right? Mm-hmm. So
1: completely, completely horrible. And
0: they're probably traumatized on both sides. Like it's probably
1: oh, yeah. one of the
0: reasons that they're so triggered and they clearly have a physiological response and a, a cognitive response to seeing each other. It's just that yep. they're probably both dealing with the traumatic aftermath of, of what happened.
1: And it's really similar to Riley's situation because it's definitely said that Joe is an alcoholic. Oh, yes. I don't know that it's clear whether or not he's he was an alcoholic before the accident, but my impression was that we could assume that this happened when he was drunk. So yeah. it's very similar to Riley's situation where he was drunk driving, killed a person. Joe was using a gun while drunk and maimed a person. Exactly. And so they're, they're basically... In the same boat, but it just seems like Joe doesn't have the community around him that Riley does. Of these empathetic, of these empathetic and non judgmental people like Aaron and his mom.
0: Oh no, that's a sad thought. But you're right. At one point, Riley refers to himself as the town pariah, but I think it'd be more aptly applied to oh, Joe. It's Joe, right? Like the poor guy. Yeah, it's Joe, and I mean, you know, I say poor guy. He's a guy who seems like a decent guy, as we see in this episode, but he did an absolutely awful, horrible thing, and he's responsible for it. So it's just like Riley, right?
1: Yeah, I agree. Like, uh, you know, I don't think that doing one horrible thing, especially something by accident, even though it was reckless, but doing one bad thing negates you being a good or a decent or an okay person and certainly doesn't negate you being a person um Worthy of empathy and respect and time, but if I was Lisa's parents, yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be buddying up to him. So it is obviously contextual, but it's just it's just hard to hard to see. Like when I watch the show, mm-hmm. I feel a lot of empathy for Joe. Yes,
0: because we're we're made to sit because there in you, his oh, yeah. scenes and watch, and it's a very sad sight. Mm. Like it's a very sorry sight, Joe Colley. Right. So I think that's definitely intentional. And I've thought before, too, like you're you're right about what you say. Um, I'd like to have a worldview where someone doing something bad doesn't make them an out and out bad person. You know, I think that's the right way Mm -hmm. to look at these things, because otherwise the person has no reason for their existence afterwards if there's no such thing as redemption or of living a good life after Mm. something like that. But then I've also thought, like you said, from the perspective of their parents, like I have a daughter. I raised her. She was going along perfectly well, and she would still be if not for having met this person, right? It's just like mm-hmm. the, when you think about all the things that kind of combine to make a terrible situation like that and how easily they could have been avoided, it's just it's a lot to think about for sure. So I think it's very complex themes that they're kind of trying to unpack.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We see at the schoolhouse, Um, we get a scene like they really are giving Mm. so much story in this episode. We see the scene where Bev is working in the pantry and Erin, she's there kind of helping out.
1: Erin is a teacher and works at the school. So she's cleaning something. She's cleaning her room.
0: Yeah, and she comes to get more Windex.
1: And then Bev is in there. I guess Bev just seems to feel that she has the right to be anywhere and everywhere within the town. She feels a lot of authority. So I, I get the impression that The uh, school, because it's such a tiny community, the school is a bit of a community center also. So there's kind of like resources there that other people can access and that that's what she says she's doing, going in there and getting that uh, rat poison, which her explanation doesn't even make much sense. It's like you think that there's a predator that killed a bunch of cats and so you're going to put out rat poison for the... For the predator, it just doesn't really make any sense. And what kind of predator? It's an island. <laughs> like, is it an albatross? Like, what got there? Did did a wolf sneak onto the ferry? Like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: It's a land shark.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a land shark. Oh,
0: is that a sponsorship opportunity? Yeah, man. Um, you know, Jimmy Jimmy Buffett rest in power. Jimmy Buffett, but Land Shark, yeah, big uh, popular beer brand. Um. It is. So Bev kind of gives Aaron a bullocking for oh for bringing God, this yeah. empty bottle. Where does she get Sorry, No, she doesn't even. She gives her a bullocking for asking for a new bottle of Windex. It's like, yeah, Bev, I want to clean the window. You know what I mean? Like that's what, yeah. that, that's what Windex is for. She references Aaron's mom and says, you know, your mom, she was so good. She would save all the bottles and she'd fill them with water so you could get more out of it. And I used to say, you know... Oh, we're gonna get buried under all these bottles that you're you're keeping, and and you you just threw it away, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And she goes, "Isn't that a gas?
0: Is it a generational thing? Is it like you kids don't care?
1: I think she doesn't like Erin because she's pregnant and ran away from town and all this True. stuff. So I think that she just feels like she's not li- like living the Christian life that Bev sees as correct. So I think she just doesn't like her." So she's just finding any reason to belittle her. That's the way that I understood it because it doesn't even make sense that Bev would be a big fan of her mom if her mom was an an abusive alcoholic, which is what it's implied to be. So I think that she's just trying to grind Aaron's gears.
0: Yeah, and and she does that with a lot of people. Um, She kind of... Everyone. She says little things that like dig at their... uh, Like under their skin. And she says things that are super backhanded and everyone knows it. And... Everyone hates Bev pretty much, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, like everyone's got her number. Everyone understands who she is. Like she's not fooling anyone.
0: And she's so self-righteous.
1: She's so self-righteous. And the idea that if you are like, um, you know, following, basically following the rules of Christianity, whatever, in whatever way you think you are, like she dresses modestly, um, you know, she probably you know hasn't killed anyone she probably listens to her parents definitely not
0: getting any She does all
1: those things no but the idea that you can feel so self-satisfied that you're doing all those things but be emotionally mean and nasty to people and think that those two things jive and that Uh, you know jesus and god would be like yeah you're cool because you're dressing modestly so i'll let you get away with treating people like crap you know there was a one golden rule and it was just to treat other people as you want to be treated right like If he wanted you to remember one thing, that's it.
0: Yeah, good point. Um, And, you know, that's what we still...
1: Maybe she wants people to be nasty to her.
0: (laughs) Maybe she has like a masochistic streak. She's got like a... Yeah, and
1: she's like, I'm doing everyone in this town a favor. She's
0: got like a criticism fetish. What did you think about the scene where Father Paul visits Sarah's house and does like a house call Mm. for her mom to give her communion?
1: Uh, Extremely sweet. Yeah extremely considerate like as a religious like an elderly religious person I can't imagine anything that would give you much more comfort than that
0: that's a good and how thoughtful
1: of like a community priest to do
0: yeah and like we've spoken about a bit you know we were exposed to to church and and to going to mass and things as a kid fell out of that but we still have some relatives especially our elderly ones who are devout and and really um, going to church is a very important thing to them and so I really agree that with Sarah's mom it was something that due to her health she had to fall out of and it was probably really painful to her that she lost that and not just the faith and the religion but the community too whoever was at church and staying after church and having all the church lady sandwiches and the cookies and all that stuff (laughs) like it's a big deal especially cheese and cucumbers (laughs) it's a big deal especially for these old timers right and a lot of them you know unfortunately might be in a position like sarah's mom Mm
1: -hmm. research bears out that like being involved in community whatever it might be like you could be part of a bridge club or you could be like attending church every Sunday and doing the church lady sandwiches after whatever form community of community that takes it, it um, extends your life.
0: Right. Exactly. And it, it, um, it really engenders some you. kind of strength and some kind of motivation and things like that. I saw a flyer about a dog killing club and I was wondering if it might
1: A dog killing club. Yeah,
0: and I was wondering if it might yield some benefit to me if if I, like a sense of community, you know what I mean? It's not my favorite subject, but.
1: Like I said, in any form it takes. Perfect, thank you. Thank you for validating that. Community is community, baby.
0: (laughs) There is probably plenty of clubs that we don't condone, but we do condone a community aspect. But I thought the same thing. I thought that was super sweet. I thought it was so kind of him to go there and to give this woman exactly what she would have wanted. What did you think Sarah thought of it?
1: Well, my impression of Sarah, like, I really like Sarah. She just seems like a level-headed, practical, empathetic person is just... The, and, like, yeah. not religious, but empathetic and understanding. And so my impression is that she's appreciative of it because she knows how much it means to her mom. Yeah. I think that she's startled to see him and is kind of like... Yeah, what the heck? What are you doing here? I didn't invite you. Um, but she's doesn't have her backup or anything. And I think that she just appreciates it for what it means to her mom
0: good point and that's the way I saw it too and when she kind of stands at the threshold after he's been going a little while I think she was gaining kind of an understanding of father Paul and of her mom and being like you know they're doing what they think is a really good thing right now and that's the question I want to ask too and like number one father Paul is just so cute with some of the stuff too she calls him John <laughs> which is Monsignor Pruitt's name and I mm. mean This is like a a wise old woman, apparently, because she's picking up on things that other people aren't because she knew she knew things that other people didn't because she's a lot older than the other people in the town. He he just explains that away. He kind of laughs and he's like, oh, well, we have the same tailor, which I thought was so funny, (laughs) right, because they wear the same clothes. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you, we know, having been through it before, that the way things are playing out is that. There's a creature in town brought by Father Paul. It's a vampire. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they're using the blood to give to the town and give to the people. Right. Mm -hmm. So Father Paul Mm -hmm. is knowingly giving her communion and giving her the blood of this vampire. Mm -hmm. We know the way that he thinks about it. We know that he thinks that the vampire is an angel. So again, we kind of come to the question, he's so convinced that what he's doing is right and just Mm -hmm. that he thinks he's there practically to save her life. Right. So do you, are we viewing Paul then father Paul as a good man? Like what's your take on that?
1: So I, I view him as um, a well-intentioned man who is doing wrong. And like, so within the context of healthcare, that would be called, that would be called paternalistic, right? The idea that, I know what's best, that me as the professional, I know what's best, and I don't even need to consult you about it because I know, and it's irrefutable. And that's kind of the way that he's thinking. He he doesn't think he needs to ask her, would you like to live forever? True. Would you like to take this communion? He doesn't think that he needs to ask her that because he just knows. So yeah, within the context of healthcare, that is like a um, an ethical um, aspect of care that comes up a lot. And especially within psych, it comes up a lot. Because there are times that someone, when their brain is sick and they're experiencing a psychiatric illness in an acute phase, that they're not thinking the way they normally would. And so the question comes up, can this person make informed decisions and give informed consent? So that's something that comes up a lot. And the law varies across provinces and across countries in terms of how to address it. And some places are more lenient and some places are less so. But it it, it is um, always a serious ethical judgment to make when you're uh, a professional making those kind of decisions in terms of whether to make someone incapable of making their own decisions or not and um, how to interpret uh, their mental status. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... It's interesting to see it happen so simply in this show. Like he's just like, yep, I know what's best because that is something that is like, it's a really dangerous thought to have. And it's something that I feel anyone who is a medical professional, you need to be thinking about it deeply and reflecting on why you're making the choices that you're making all the time because it's easy to see a situation and think, oh, that person, I I know what's right for that person. Right. Right. It's easy to think that way, but I think any time that those kind of questions come up, it's important to, to really reflect back and kind of assess your own, where your own judgments are coming from because it's a, it's a very important question and sometimes people are going to make decisions about their health that you wouldn't make and you need to accept that that's okay and, uh, and that that's the way it needs to be. Like for example, someone who is um, dying, mm-hmm of an illness and there's a, you know, a viable treatment, but they think, you know what, I don't want to do that treatment because it's going to be really painful or it's going to be really hard. And you might be thinking, no, no, no. take that treatment. You could live another 10 years. Yeah. But just because that's the way you think doesn't mean it's correct.
0: Right. And having some autonomy on behalf of a person, you know, when yeah. it comes to their own decisions to make. And so I think that's a good point you make. That's something that Father Paul is completely bypassing. And anyone with any kind of understanding, mm-hmm. or anyone who spent time thinking about ethics, probably should have some idea of individual autonomy, which he's taking away from the whole mm-hmm. town. Any any people in the town that he can get his mitts on, at least, right? Um, yeah. Anyone he can get yes. into the door, and
1: he's trying to get everyone.
0: Yes, he's he's really kind of trying to evangelize the best he can, so that they can have the blood of this angel, right? So that's true. It's it's interesting yeah. though. He clearly is a kind guy. Um, Like you say, he's a very well-intentioned guy, but he does way too much rationalizing, and we'll see that throughout the Hmm. show, right? He loses sight of himself.
1: I feel like basically within uh, the context of this show, I'm like, oh, what a a charismatic actor. (laughs) I, I see where he's coming from. Like, oh, this guy's so charming. he's Oh, he's trying to do his best. He's just misguided. I like this guy. I think he's good. Within the context of the narrative, that is the way that I'm thinking. But if this guy was a colleague, I'd be like, this guy's very irresponsible. He needs to get his head screwed on straight. I would not be a fan of this guy as a colleague.
0: There's just a really quick scene. Again, there's so many good scenes in this episode. But Riley's walking back from the mainland after having done his AA he speaks with Aaron on her porch right
1: do you know what I really like about this is that he's kind of trying to wallow is the is the impression that I get right. from him. he tries to walk right past her she won't let him yeah and she won't let him but not she doesn't get offended and say like what the fuck man like she it just seems to me that she's really trying to connect with him and show that despite what he's done she's still there for him mm-hmm and doing so in a way that he can accept by being kind of like casual and jokey about it, I feel like she's she's working really hard for him, and uh, it just makes makes me really like her. That yeah, to to stop him from walking by her house and give him a little positive moment in his day by having this conversation with her, I just think that she seems to be working really really hard for him just as a friend, and uh, I think that that's really. Sweet.
0: Yeah. And I think she's doing an expert job at it. They have a jokey type relationship, which comes across in this scene. She's jokey about how terrible her routine is. Wake up with morning sickness, go to school. You know, half the kids think I'm terrible. Then I come back and I'm sick more. And, uh, you know, just whatever she might be struggling with with the pregnancy. Right. And I agree. She's saying, oh, well, you know you're not just gonna walk right by are you like come talk to me Mm -hmm. she's not letting him kind of stew in in whatever um Mm -hmm. is going on with him and in the first episode too she was really encouraging him to try to hang on and to try to find a purpose for himself Mm -hmm. which I think she's doing the right thing by not negating what happened and what he's dealing with and not trying to Mm -hmm. say well what about this what about that but to say okay you Mm -hmm. know getting through this storm and Mm -hmm. getting to the other side and continuing to move on Which is very different than, um, you know, the approach that some people might have.
1: And it's so hard because it's natural for us when we're presented with a problem to try to fix it. Most definitely, yeah. But in the cases of serious, like, grief, mental illness, this kind of thing, that is just never the answer. Phrases like, at least. Yeah. Or, look at the bright side, this kind of thing. They just... Don't work and they minimize that what that person is feeling and it creates a disconnect and she's really not doing that she doesn't say like oh well you know at least you got a place to live at least you're home with your parents she acknowledges that what he's been through is terrible that what he's feeling is terrible that what he did is terrible but she's basically like I'm still your friend
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: here I am chatting with you and like I think that that's all he can accept and all he needs right then because it it wouldn't feel good knowing how he feels about it. It wouldn't feel good for you to say like, well, at least you're out of prison. Yeah. Because he feels horrible for what he did. That would that would hit his ear so wrong and make him feel even worse and yucky and gross. For sure. And I feel like she just approaches it in the right way, you know?
0: No, I totally agree. So I think those scenes are really well written and they're written with a lot of understanding about a way that a person might open themselves to Riley and make a connection with Riley in the ways that so far other people in his circle haven't been able to. So I agree. I think those are really Mm -hmm. well written scenes. Um, Mm -hmm. We cut to um, the mom, Annie, is working on some sewing. She's doing a big banner, right? And she yep. pricks her finger and she has to take her glasses off to see the prick on her finger, right? So these are some... Because
1: her glasses are now making her vision blurry. Exactly.
0: These are some little clues that are happening throughout this episode before the bombshell at the end that shows us that whatever is ailing people and everyone has their own thing in the island, they appear to be improving in terms of their physical health, right?
1: Yep. And we also see that later when Riley goes out on the boat with his dad. Yeah,
0: that's um, right.
1: Which is another, it's another sweet moment of him to offer that, trying to make that connection again with his dad. Yes. But the fact that his dad goes to lift something that we assume to be heavy and Riley goes, no, 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 dad, you're back. And he goes, no, I'm like, I'm actually okay. I'm okay. I can get through it. There's
0: a really great song too called Saturday Morning by Harry Chapin that mom's listening to. It's just, there's a lot of needle drops in this uh, series, right?
1: There's a lot of old, uh, old timey, like uh, golden oldies. Oh eh? yeah,
0: absolutely. And just really kind of nice to listen to easy listening stuff
1: yeah for for you and me it's it's right up our street i think
0: riley comes in and and the mom annie says hi honey how was your day and he kind of walks past her do you think she doesn't get it like she doesn't understand where riley's at necessarily or is mom right and she's kind of like well you know today's a new day how did today go like where do you fall on that one because to me i can kind of understand why riley's like you know i can't be asked a question like that and i can also Mm. understand his mom kind of saying well you know how did today go right so like how did you feel about that interaction
1: i kind of think that she i almost feel like because he's her son that she has such a positive regard and loves him so much that she just can't get it. She can't get where he's at and how low he's at because maybe it's too hard yeah. for her to even put her mind there that he feels so low and like his opinion of himself. So I just think that there's a disconnect because almost like she can just never put herself there because she's his mom.
0: I think you're that's kind of the
1: way that I, I think
0: you're right. Think about it. I think it. you're right. And she's not really able maybe to recognize that Riley's empty and that's the way that he's yeah. feeling like there's nothing good or, or bad, or anything about today, it's the same, right? Um, but how could you blame his mom for, you know, hoping to mm-hmm. see a change in that? I think it's just too painful for either of them to really consider where the other yes, one's at. Right? I think so too. Which is really hard.
1: Like, because that's just still her baby.
0: Jeez. So she just can't put
1: herself there, you know? that? that I'm so sentimental <laughs> now. Like, I always was. Yeah. But now, now that I'm a mom, I like, I can't even.
0: I know. And it's like, geez, Mike Flanagan tugging on the heartstrings. Let me see here. And and so I just think like there's so many good scenes. And then Riley goes to bed again, staring directly at the image of Tara, the girl he killed in the car accident with the flashing police lights on her. And he says to her, how was your mm. day? Right. Almost in mm-hmm. a kind of nihilistic kind of way. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. hitting home, I think, the the grief and pain for Riley. There's some really cool overhead shots of the island late at night.
1: Yep. Yeah. Right? And it's kind of POV moving erratically
0: shots. and up and down, and then you can hear wing beats, right?
1: Yeah. I love that. Me too. I, love I thought it. that was such a cool thing. Because it's a scene. cool way to look at cool way to look at the island yes. that, you know, gives you an impression of where things are laid out and all that. So it serves that purpose, but also, you know, it, it hints at what the monster
0: is. I love it. Yeah, I thought that was awesome too. And then Warren's uh, altar boyfriend kind of sees the creature land within an abandoned building
1: same way as he saw he saw the creature in the first episode too because like there's a you know when they were walking out to the upwards or yeah. whatever and he goes like whoa that was like a huge pelican because <laughs> oh, yeah, he I just forgot sees about
0: that. <laughs>
1: some big big winged thing take off oh
0: that's so awesome so next is as you were saying it's ash wednesday and mass is much more crowded and bev is talking about that kind of for all to hear Right. And Bev is like, well, if it weren't for Easter or Christmas, lots of these people wouldn't even be here. They'd never come to church Hmm. at all. So it's kind of a cliche of like the Easter and Christmas Catholics or something like that, that um, some of the big events draw out a much bigger crowd. And she's kind of calling that out as people walk by her like she's such a jerk.
1: She's such a jerk. Yeah. So when everyone is uh, is there for uh, for Ash Wednesday, I like that Riley goes to sit down again for the uh, cross on his forehead and I like that that the mom says like it's not a sacrament it's a blessing and like anyone can get a blessing kind of thing
0: exactly so this time Riley actually is willing to go up everyone in town that attends the mass gets the black cross put on their um, forehead with the ashes and
1: he addresses them each by name which I think must be a small town exactly
0: exactly Um, and he has a very uh, poignant sermon too that I think kind of is is really tied in well to what's going on with the show
1: oh yeah everyone everyone's misty-eyed
0: yes exactly so there is a few things going on he father Paul talks about love coming out of sin uh, and sin being a blackness that stepped into us um, which I thought was really cool and then he does a lot of um, what I think would be fair to call crowd service so or (laughs) fan service he says,
1: "Oh, like up uh, the the fishing stuff." Exactly,
0: exactly. He knows which side his bread is buttered on, right? And he's like, you know, the first disciples. What were they? They were fishermen, and the and some of the miracles too. He he's you know he's using miracles to make more fish and all this stuff. He sees you, and he'll resurrect this place. Like it was almost like super preacher stuff going on.
1: But knowing, um, knowing what we know about Father Hill, yeah. I think that he just is so short-sighted and his whole world is this island. And so he re- I think he really believes what he's saying.
0: So do I. I don't think he was intentionally deceiving anybody um, in this case. I think he was just like, he was reading the Bible to come up with what sermon he was going to do. And he's like, oh my God, this all fits perfectly, right? But yeah, like even the dad, uh, Ed, is impacted by it. And yeah. he's crying. I yeah. mean, it's really hitting home with these people.
1: And so is Aaron, like basically all, like, all the women are misty-eyed. Yeah,
0: and he's basically assuring everybody that everything will be fine and that the, the island will be resurrected somehow. Um, Faith is during the darkness and the worst of times singing out to be restored. And that really hits home with everybody too, that I think they feel like they're at a desolate hour on the island. And so he's kind of promising them, uh, a lot of really good things if they can maintain faith, right?
1: I think it's interesting that afterwards they go to the uh, crock potluck. Crock luck,
0: potluck, yes.
1: Which um, which is funny because that's not an Ash Wednesday thing. That would be Fat Tuesday. You don't go eat a bunch of food together pancakes? on Ash Wednesday.
0: Yeah. I got the impression it was it was not separate because it was to celebrate the beginning of Lent. But it was just its own thing. Like it was a tradition that they had on the island.
1: But I just think that that's a little bit interesting because Ash Wednesday is supposed to be kind of the beginning of like a crappy time where you're like not eating good f- You know, where you're repenting and you're not eating good food and you give stuff up. And,
0: right. And like, all that. Like so Fat why Tuesday would you have a big like feast the, after? Fat Tuesday is like the last day before your diet starts. So you might as well.
1: It, that, that is right? exactly what it is. <laughs> so
0: you might as well go ham.
1: You know that Fat Tuesday is Mardi Gras. Oh,
0: right? I didn't know that. Funny. Yeah. Okay. It's
1: French for So that is today. an
0: interesting point that they probably should have had the crock pot luck on the Tuesday.
1: <laughs> but anyway, okay. And I got to say something yeah. else. So I, we have a lot of crock, uh, not crock pots. We have a lot of <laughs> potlucks at, uh, at work. Oh, Nice. Because, you know, we're, we're often, like, we're working shifts on the weekend or we're working shifts on a holiday or whatever. So we want to do something kind of nice. Mm-hmm. So we, and we have a big group of people always working, you know, there's six or seven of us. So we often enough all bring food. And uh, another employee from somewhere else in the hospital came down to our unit to check something. And when he was on our unit, I said to him, like, oh, we're having a potluck today. So feel free to have some of the food before you go. And he looked at me and went, potluck? And I was like, yeah, potluck, like we all brought food. And he was like, oh, that's what you call it. Like to me, as if I'm like, I didn't make it up.
0: (laughs) You're like, oh yeah, I just, I made that up.
1: Who doesn't know what the term potluck means?
0: I thought that was a very well-known term, I have to say.
1: Well, me too. He looked at me like I had two heads, (laughs) like he didn't know what I was talking about.
0: Oh, what a sad, sad little man. What is the worst and best thing to you that someone could bring to a potluck?
1: Best thing? I'm a big fan of chip and dip. Big fan of tortilla chips and just about any dip you could bring. I also like uh, like a crock pot full of like pulled pork or something. something to go on bread. I like a hot worst thing. Worst thing would probably be like just a bad baked good because <laughs> I love baked goods. So maybe it would be be a baked good that I just like can't get like on board. You don't with. like shortbread. Yes, like I don't I like shortbread. Bread. So it would be something that would be so tempting to me, except that I, oh, Gennettis. Oh. Because I hate, I hate uh, black licorice flavor. So I'd be like, ooh, look at that, like nice iced pastry. And then I'd be like, oh no, it's a ginetti.
0: Yeah, I might be on board with you on that one. And and not because, like, Gennettis are really nicely baked good that take, you know, expertise to make. And, and I would love them, People if only love not them. for the black licorice flavor.
1: There is a lady at our local market who makes ginettis in every flavor but black licorice so we should just get on board with that cuz then they're just
0: basically No, donuts. and then i then i'd love them and anyway this town <laughs> has, anyway. has a tradition of having a crock potluck because of crockett which bev is so proud that they coined the name bev thinks it's so cool it's so cool that they invented a title
1: and she's so <laughs> not
0: she thinks she's so cool she's so not but as the potluck is going on riley's kind of sitting by himself on a bench and father paul joins him we get the lore dump there that joe is the one who shot lisa and and paralyzed her Um, Mm -hmm. i thought that riley actually entertained father paul for quite a while whereas before he's like uh, you know
1: and he asked him about how father pruitt's doing And Father Hill said, like, "Mm, he's not coming back anytime soon, kind of established that. And then Father Hill, like, admits that he did kind of have an agenda to uh, offer to Riley that he could make, because he's a priest, that he could make a chapter of AA on the island, which I don't think is really in the spirit of it to have it be like a one-on-one thing. It's supposed to be a group sharing thing. Yeah, (laughs) that too. On a tiny island. Do you know what I was thinking to Mm -hmm. myself recently? How do, like, lots of celebrities must be alcoholics. How do they go to AA?
0: Maybe they don't. Maybe they more so tap into like some, but then that's some too really bad. premium therapy or something. Uh plenty of them plenty yeah. of them do it seems. I mean, I'm speaking in huge generalities. Plenty of them do seem to mm. tap into like rehab facilities. I bet they're friggin' better than the hotels I've stayed in, but still.
1: And you know what? Maybe within the rehab they probably have like a, a maybe a similar kind of group sharing setup. Maybe. But I just thought oh, that's kind of sad that they just probably don't feel like they have that. They've resource certainly lost, to them.
0: lost their anonymity, no question.
1: I thought it was pretty interesting that um, Father Hill is so comfortable just saying like, "Well, Joe's an alcoholic. You know, we've got an alcoholic. Yeah. We probably have other problem drinkers." Yeah. Just thought that that was a little bit interesting. He doesn't seem to be uh, very tactful about how he's talking about it, but. Um, Yeah so then it's I guess The uh, idea does kind of appeal to uh, Riley but do you know what I like At the end of their conversation Mm -hmm. here Is how Aaron comes Up with coffee for him Just like in solidarity with him Again like you can't Drink everyone gets a drink Ticket on walking in and we see Riley Accept it like they Hand it straight to Riley
0: Now they're adults and they have these drink tickets and neither of them Can use them because she's pregnant right
1: imagine how valuable that would feel to have that direct support. Someone right beside you who knows you can't drink and is not going to drink themselves and is going to give you an alternative. Here's your coffee. Like, let's not even talk about the drinks. Like, or like, let's not even think about it. I think that, that like from speaking to some people who have had addiction issues, like just how ubiquitous alcohol is makes it so, so hard for them to move through life trying to avoid alcohol because even at a really casual party Mm -hmm. it might it it might get brought up multiple times right like it's just hard to avoid because it's so uh so much a part of the culture
0: another thing that we see at this crock pot party is that (laughs) joe's dog dies so it's a absolutely horrible scene
1: yes and so absolutely horrible and, like, Joe is keening, saying exactly. his name and over screaming. and over again over his over his dog. Absolutely heart-rending. And I asked you whether you thought it was text or subtext that Bev did it. Because it definitely seems to be implied. And that, like we said, everyone kind of has Bev's number and knows what kind of a person she is. So I think everyone in the town who is seeing this unfold is thinking that maybe yeah. it was her. They all know she doesn't like the dog. She doesn't like Joe. And I asked you if you thought it was text or subtext. And we had initially agreed on first watching it that it just seems to be heavily implied. But on rewatch, you see it happen because you can see Bev because of her skirt and her shoes. Like, so you can see that it's the outfit that Mm -hmm. she's wearing. You could see her bend down and feed something to Oh,
0: okay.
1: So to me, that's confirmation. And
0: then, you know, yeah, I didn't even realize that. I think it's it's very much text as well just because of the way the show handles it too so eventually the sheriff has a standoff with Bev and he's like you know you've got all this rat poison you've been talking about it could that have been could that have contributed to Pike's death because we got it confirmed that he died by poisoning
1: that he was poisoned
0: and then he goes and follows up with Joe about it too and he's like you know, Joe's saying, you know, she's terrible. You don't know her like I do and all this stuff. And he says, Sheriff, you're a really smart man, but you don't know Bev like I do. You know, the sheriff is like, you know, you're right. But I, I have my suspicions about her too, basically. He levels with him big time.
1: You know what? I really like that moment. Too. Because obviously, like, Joe and the sheriff are so often, like, pitted against each other just simply because of Joe's behavior and the sheriff's job. But my impression is very much that the sheriff is in Joe's corner, wants him to be okay. He doesn't bear him any ill will. And I think that Joe, he, like, makes fun of the sheriff and stuff like that. But I think he feels the same way, that in general, they they feel decently towards each other. And him saying, yeah, you, like, I've known Bev since grade school. I know what kind of person she is. I know she did it. The sheriff is able to communicate, like, I can't do anything legally about it. There's nothing I can do about it. But you are right. And I believe you. And that just, like, stops Joe in his tracks and he just says thank you. Just how much that meant to him just to be acknowledged and recognized meant so much to yeah, him. Yeah,
0: that was really awesome. Yes.
1: I feel so much for Joe in this <laughs> show. Well, like,
0: his life is absolutely terrible.
1: His life is terrible.
0: And one interesting thing when his dog does die, right, and he barfed up this blood and he was laying there, he immediately, Joe, immediately accuses the town of having killed his dog so there's not any point where he's like what the hell happened he's like who did it right and it's just it was really interesting and it? then there's a point where because
1: you guys hate me so yeah much. and there's a
0: point where someone says well joe maybe it was a terrible accident and he says you call this an accident or something like that and when he screams out that and he, he references an accident everyone including mm. joe is super on edge And they show Lisa and her family and the mayor and all this stuff. So it's a reference back to whatever happened between he and Lisa where he shot her. And, you know, just that Mm -hmm. word accident really rubs everyone the wrong way out of Joe's mouth.
1: This show is so good at like, I don't know, tugging on your heartstrings from every angle. Oh
0: Gosh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think that things are really well written where they feel like they could be real in terms of some of the relationships Mm -hmm. and the way they play out and obviously some of them are built up for dramatic effect but they all have kind of a, a very human aspect to them at the center that makes them very easily understood right so i agree okay so let's cut to the first aa meeting we get to see the first aa meeting which is only between father paul and riley it's just the two of them sitting there and riley's basically like well what do you want me to do Father Paul Mm -hmm. just says, well, you know, I I just want you to to talk. And so Riley gets maybe what we might consider one of his first monologues. And this show has a lot of monologues. Mm -hmm. It's one of the criticisms that's been Mm -hmm. leveled against this show where he says a whole lot. And Father Paul just listens and he talks about the island. He talks about the island in a critical way. He references that there was a Mm -hmm. settlement put up by the oil company and Bev encouraged everybody to take that money. And then also that she suggested, you know, maybe send it the church's way as well, right? Now that you've got some of that money, Mm -hmm. it's a gift from God. Why don't you give it back to God kind of thing? There's some illusion that there might have been more money than actually got put to use by the church. And that basically the money went to Bev. Mm -hmm. There was a rec center Mm -hmm. built, which Riley doesn't kind of think was a necessary thing to do. And he makes uh, a statement that I thought was really interesting about poor starving communities with a really nice big church, right? And that the Mm. people that are in those Mm -hmm. communities feel pressure, whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic to be giving to the church. And maybe they think that that'll be good for, Mm. you know, their own spiritual well-being, but it's like, they don't have money to give and they're giving it to the church. It was a really cool point that was made, I think. And it was kind of really kind of had me thinking.
1: No, um, I agree with you. Like he levels a lot of criticisms at, like at the church and at kind of explaining his stance as an atheist and why he kind of came to that decision after being raised in the church I think and he's obviously he's very eloquent and uh, like thoughtful in how he did it but he and Father Hill are just at such loggerheads yeah. and I feel like there are points in this where Father Hill is a little bit less like oh is that how you think and non-judgmental and gets a little bit more defensive when he says like oh being your own higher power how that, how's that going for you I was thinking I'm like I don't really think that's what Riley right, said. Right. He's just kind of saying that there isn't a huge higher power right. and that that's the way that he prefers to think about his addiction. Yeah.
0: And, and Riley kind of brings up um, some other forms of trying to treat addiction that are a little more along the psychotherapy side. And he, you know, he references a couple, um, uh, but it basically boils down to psychology versus faith based approach he talks about mm. recognizing an addictive voice in my head and I don't want to drink. It wants to mm-hmm. drink. And I thought he was doing maybe almost a little too much externalization, but he was talking about, but he brought yeah, it back. but he was talking about an experience. Um, so he was talking about things that were basically, we might label them as ego dystonic. And all that means is our thinking or our behavior is not in line basically with our value system or what we actually want to happen. So if you were to use an example of someone with uh, OCD, for example, they might be having a thought constantly that is very disturbing to them. And the reason that it's disturbing to them is because it's something they don't agree with and they don't want to see happen and it doesn't align with them. So a person might have the thought, um, you know, I'm going to push somebody off of a bridge.
1: I'm going to kill my family.
0: Yeah. And they're absolutely not going to do that. But the thought comes in and it's almost like the more taboo the thought is, the stronger hold it takes. And they are so scared of that thought that they can't stop thinking it almost.
1: And that's where the uh, compulsions develop as a method to avoid those thoughts.
0: And quell them. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And soothe that, which is uh, something that I think that OCD gets minimized a lot as someone who likes being neat or that kind of thing. But it's so much more um, complex and at times debilitating than that.
0: Yeah, like if if you're experiencing, you know, a lot of trouble with OCD, like you're not okay. It's not a matter of, oh, I really hate when the jars aren't facing label out. It's like, no, you're rearranging your whole house to address a problem like that or something, or you can't live the way you want to because the thoughts are so intrusive and then the compulsions become so intrusive as well. So I agree. I think OCD is very badly represented in just pop culture.
1: But do you know what's really interesting? What's really interesting is that intrusive thoughts are actually really common. Yes. But they can, like everyone has them. But it's the difference between how you respond to them and how troublesome they are when you get them.
0: And the meaning you ascribe.
1: It kind of differentiates between um, someone in a healthy mental state and someone who isn't. Because for example, like we've probably all had thoughts like you're standing on the edge of a balcony and you think, what if I jumped off? Or... Someone hands you a baby and you think, what if I just dropped him on the right. floor right now? And so those thoughts happen to everyone. But for some people, it's a split second that doesn't bother them and it's out of their head. And for other people, as we say, it can develop into you know, a disorder that becomes life-altering and debilitating.
0: Very fascinating. And you're right. I mean, recognizing that that happens to everybody and that they're just basically junk thoughts can be actually a really liberating realization for a lot of people.
1: The junk thoughts. Yep. I think it's extremely difficult to um, understand kind of the concept that your thoughts don't mean as much as you think they do. True. Or like you say, junk thoughts.
0: Yeah. And and gnats too. um, Negative automatic thoughts. Your thinking is very powerful and your thinking is amazing. But there's a lot of scrap too. And your first thought is not always your best thought. You know what I mean? So sometimes the negative ones come in first. It doesn't mean that it's the truth. But I mean, we could go on and on. This is the basis of so much psychotherapy Mm. and the way that it works, right?
1: Yeah. It's so interesting. Like your thoughts are not you. Your thoughts are not necessarily true. Your thoughts aren't necessarily valid. Like that's hard to uh, understand. I think most of us and certainly myself... You think I am my yeah. thoughts because that's just how yeah. your brain works. Your inner monologue, the way that you think about things, I think most of us think of that as who right. we are. So to think that some of it is junk and some <laughs> of it doesn't doesn't matter is like, it's almost impossible to swallow and it takes a yeah, lot of weird. work. That's some of the real work of, uh, of like treating mental illness in terms of psychotherapy. And it's a huge amount of work. It's really difficult and complex and takes time, which is something interesting. I was just going to mention that on my unit, I get a lot of people saying, like, for example, people who haven't been admitted before, they come in and they say, well, I assume I'm going to be getting talk therapy here. And we say, no, mm-hmm. actually, you're not. A lot of people go like, what the, what the heck? Then what am I here for? Like, they think that is, that is mental mm-hmm. health treatment. But my unit is a short stay unit. You're not supposed to be there for a right. long time. And so, to initiate talk therapy on our unit would not be appropriate because you're supposed to be there for, you know, ideally days to yeah. weeks, not long term. And so, it's yeah, it's one of those things we say. Actually, no, that's not really what our unit is for. That's that's a uh, you know, like long term work that takes place over the course of you know months to years. So of course, we would love to set people up with those resources, um, and that that would be a part of their treatment going forward, but not really on unit.
0: But I think that's a good point you make. And then even what is the goal of this unit? We're an acute psychiatric Mm. unit, which means when the acute risk is gone, that person is going to move on to services from elsewhere, right? So the community. And that's probably where you're going to see more of the, the psychotherapy, the talk therapy happening, right? Rather than right now you're on our unit. We're trying to make sure that you're safe and that you have a plan for leaving the unit.
1: I just feel so bad. Because I I can see them be so disappointed because then they feel like they're not going to get any help. And what I, the way I often phrase it is that coming into hospital is an important way to get established with resources, is for us to connect you with resources.
0: You're at the outset of something.
1: Yeah, it's the start of something and it is the best place to be connected directly to all those resources that you need in a timely fashion. So that's the way that I like to phrase it to help people feel like, it's not like they're mm-hmm. not getting anything and it's not like they're not going to get help and that they're just going to be yep. left abandoned because obviously we want to set you up for success before Absolutely.
0: you leave. And so Riley kind of goes off, basically, I would say. He is critical of a lot of ideas. He he also he kind of hmm. flirts with an idea of there's someone inside of me that wants to drink and I feed that person and he ruined my life and he did this and he did this and he killed that little girl. Mm -hmm. And then he stops himself and he says, I killed that little girl. Right? Like he, he kind of merges the two. And again, I don't want to talk about it for too long because we could talk about it forever, but it is an Mm -hmm. idea that we have to understand or come to an understanding that within us exists multitudes, and that yeah there are mm-hmm. th- there are thoughts and drives and emotions and things within us that can take us to a very good place and they can also take us to a very bad place and it's all within us mm-hmm. right it's not it's not two separate people necessarily but that concept appears all throughout culture right it's like the the concept of the shadow mm-hmm. self the concept of the parts that are in us that if we if they drove the bus all the time would take us to the worst place we're possible mm-hmm. of getting.
1: And I think, so I've told you about this lots of times. I listen to true crime podcasts right. a fair amount. There are oftentimes times that the hosts are talking about people who have done obviously extremely atrocious, terrible things. And some hosts like to say, this person is a monster. Mm-hmm. This person is not human. This person is doing things that i could never do and i think that is extremely arrogant and just flat out wrong i personally think that every single person has the ability to do really great good things or do really terrible things it completely depends on your con uh, on the context what situation Mm -hmm. you're in Mm -hmm. what you've been through in your life and so i think that that's something that's important to consider when you're dealing with someone who has really difficult behaviors, maybe, um, maybe related to an addiction, maybe related to a, me- a mental health, uh, sorry, a mental yep. illness. For example, if, uh, if someone is uh, addicted and living on the street and they're stealing, yep. for example, there are a lot of people who think, oh my God, I hate this guy. He just broke into my car. What a bad guy. What a bad person. I could never be like right. that guy. But the fact is... No one would choose that. It's it's not as simple as a choice. It's not as simple as that's a bad guy. And if you imagine that you've been through what another person has been through in their life, you can't say how you would behave.
0: And and I think you're right. And it's you can kind of mistake yourself or you, you can make the mistake of thinking hmm. that you're only in the position you are because you made the good choices that it took to make. But it's yes. like you and I were born middle class. We live middle class. Mm. We're still middle class. We didn't climb, we didn't sink, but it's like we were set up to be in a position where as long as we didn't make some serious mistakes, we could build a really nice life for ourselves that's kind of cushy and and things like that, that in comparison to a person who's homeless or anything like that, it, it doesn't even compare, right? So as much as we could give ourselves credit for the things that we've done, hey, I went to school. I I got myself two degrees. I got myself good jobs. Yes, I did.
1: Yeah. Oh, I worked so hard. That's all hard work that I did.
0: (laughs) But it doesn't mean that I can take all the credit for, you know, the fortunes that, you know, I've been lucky enough to have. It's, It's a privilege thing. Right. But I agree. I think people can't conceive of the amount to which context and environmental factors, and upbringing, and all these things play into a person's behavior. So, I think you're right; that's lost on a lot of us, and we could look at those things with a with a much more sympathetic eye.
1: I remember it; it was phrased really well in a show that I watched that was based on a book. One of those Reese Witherspoon uh, shows oh, okay. is called Little Fires Everywhere, and basically, it's about two moms, and one of them was like had had everything was like waspy. Pretty wealthy and this and that. And the other mom was like, she's a single mom. She moved around. um, She, a starving artist, Mm -hmm. basically, all this stuff. And the Reese Witherspoon mom and Carrie Washington mom are these two moms. So the Reese Witherspoon mom is basically acting kind of high and mighty over the Carrie Washington mom. And uh, Carrie Washington's character says, no, you didn't make good choices, you had good Mm -hmm. choices. You didn't make all the right choices. You had good options available to you. And I think that that's a really great, succinct way to encapsulate it. It's a
0: really it. good way to articulate that. And it's like, you had the road open right? to you. You didn't, you didn't leave the road, right? And it's like...
1: Yeah, you just didn't fuck up. And
0: I mean, I don't want to take away from anyone's hard work to do anything. But it's like, the no. context certainly matters a great deal, right? So, yeah, yeah I just think like... Honestly, there's a lot to unpack in these scenes because we could go on and on, and they're hitting on a lot of really cool themes here. Paul, Father Paul, is open to hearing Riley say these things. He does get defensive a couple times, and I think he gets even more so as the show keeps going. But he also tells Riley, like, listen, I'm, I'm not easy to offend, that sort of thing. Like, he encourages them yeah. to talk about whatever he wants, and so I think he does well to do that. And Riley basically comes to the idea that To call suffering a gift from God is a monstrous idea. And look at all these horrible things that have happened, right? And Mm -hmm. Father Paul says, you know, I know that, but I also know that God can find good and love within people and any person. And I thought that was interesting because I think that's something that Father Paul is genuinely good at doing. He sees people all Mm -hmm. through this island who are from different walks of life and he's accepting of them and he tries to connect with them Mm -hmm. on their level and about things that are important to them. So he's certainly trying to do that with Riley. Um, So I I think that's an idea that he truly does believe. We also start to see things. This is where the horror kicks in, because we see Erin in her house looking at old pictures. She hears something jump on her roof and then jump down, and she sees a man in the dark. And footsteps. And then... Yeah.
1: And like the, the something thumping on her roof is one thing, but then it becomes like footsteps seems to be... And then she sees those eyes, the eyes in the darkness, which have been a um, like occurring a few times. And then Bull, who we've the been introduced dealer. to as like the drug dealer who lives on the island. And also uh, he was helpful to Joe Colley and kind of a friend of his. So uh, we see mm-hmm. Bull see like look into this like con- condemned or abandoned house. And he,
0: like here's a well, sound up with that because he does hear a sound and he says like, hey, who's in there?
1: And then it repeats him Yeah, like, is that back. something
0: this vampire can do? It's like a mimic?
1: I, I think it's supposed to be that something this cool. vampire can do. Because
0: it does it a couple times to draw a mimic. But I don't
1: know right. why. Oh, and then it's so creepy. Like, him on the floor. Yeah, he's all
0: hunched down. And then he rises up the creature to a really on the tall floor, height. And he's so and tall. And you just see the glowing eyes. Yeah. It's so cool. Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, I, I love the, like, the monster design of him. I love. Because so often, vampires these days are not very yeah. scary. Like, you know, sometimes they're just like a person, but like this is this is a monster, a monster vampire.
0: And oh, exactly. I really like
1: that. And he, and he yeah, gets Yeah, so that's our first
0: kind of uh, kill of a person, right, is that he just jumps on bull and then cut to uh, another incredible scene, which is the closing scene where there's a sermon going on. Bev is reading a passage about God's followers being emboldened and unafraid, which I think is poignant again because that's something that Father Paul really has to lean on in the future when he's trying to get the town to get on board with this crazy idea to let the vampire do its thing on the town. (laughs) Do you want to explain uh, the miracle that happens then?
1: Father Hill starts, he goes to give communion and he goes to give it to Lisa, but then he doesn't allow her to take it from her wheelchair. He backs up. And continues to back up, backing up stairs because she, she tries to go forward in her yeah. motorized wheelchair. And as soon as he implies he's not going to hand it straight to her, there's rustling in the audience, in the pews. People are yeah. starting to become uncomfortable. And when he goes up the stairs, there's like an uproar. Everyone's like, Calling what the cruel. hell are you doing? And I think that kind of a, an outpouring of community, like yeah. empathy for Lisa in that moment of like, it it is angering to everyone like Aaron's up in arms obviously Lisa's parents are and this is a new guy this is a newcomer and it's like to be like where do you get off like seemingly mocking this disabled girl and then she gets up out of her and she seems to be like rapturous like the expression on her face she's like tearful because I guess I guess in that moment like father hill has won her confidence and she believes him and she gets up and walks over and is able to walk and obviously everyone is thunderstruck within the uh within the church with what they're seeing and just like such a
0: huge moment and he says the body of christ she takes it she says amen and boom credits like it was such a cool scene i remember watching it for the first time that was the first time i was like what the fuck like what is going on (laughs) and it's so awesome and they had already established that she's the one who takes communion maybe most in the town she's always there yeah so in terms of feeling the effects of drinking the blood she's the furthest along right
1: oh i didn't even think about it that way that she is probably the most
0: yes. like bolstered and father by paul at this point. somehow knew that she was yeah, ready to take the steps like i don't know how she, he would know because that would have really backfired in his face if he had done it a week too early and she couldn't stand up right but she does there's no rust on yeah. her she walks right up the stairs like it was it was such an awesome scene yes um and like what a way to close so yeah an amazing ending to an amazing episode that took us all over the island hit on all of these issues gave us a bunch of lore about the yeah. island had us really connecting with characters like us yeah a lot oh to my gosh about. yeah i think that this was uh, a really fun episode to talk about and we Jen and i'd both like to thank you guys so much for joining us. This is a really fun series. We love mm-hmm. this series and it's been a lot of fun to be able to start talking about it. And I think it's going to get more and more so as the the plot thickens with this show. And so yeah, we're going <laughs> to be getting these out as quickly as possible to just have a little more content in the spooky season yeah. like like Jenna said last episode.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Whether you tune in next for another mm-hmm. Midnight Mass or our next movie review, we can't wait to have you. And um As always, if you could follow us on Instagram at the Fear Response Podcast, that would be great. Or reach out to us via email. We'll see you next time. Thank you.
0: Hamish Linklater, you've charmed me.